Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. New series. Um, we've just come through 32 sessions on a particular module. And that module that we explore the whole of last year and from the beginning of this year up to this point. So in the whole of last year, all my speaking and teaching centered around a particular topic which we entitled The Primacy of God's Word. Okay, And um, literally, there is in excess of 45, I was trying to work it out, to 50 hours of teaching on that one series. Three discs available at the back there that have mp3s on the first segment of it, disc one, disc two, and disc three. The four, five, and six uh, discs will be out soon, where the balance of the teachings will be reflected. I encourage you, um, if, if, particularly if you've missed the bulk of that, you're missing a segment of truth that is built into the core fabric of this house that is essential for where we are going in, in the future. Please remember this, when we teach... We're not just teaching inspirationally. We're not even into motivational teaching. I'm not here to bless you. I'm here to build you. Right? So what I'm doing is I'm building constructs, concepts in your life. Building blocks. Everyone say building blocks. So we're putting in, we are laying like, like a wise master builder, Paul would say. We are craftsmen in the spirit and we're building you the house of God. The church is not this physical building of brick and mortar. The church is you. And what, do, what does God do? He puts his servants in your life to build Christ in you, to build the image of Christ in you. So that entire series on the primacy of God's word is critically important for your own development and for your placement in this house. And I want to encourage you, we ended off that series with about seven or eight sessions on the principle of how to meditate upon the Word. And those were very, very important. In fact, this morning, I was up at four and studying in my office, and I was thinking of the meditation series and was so tempted to this morning do a summary of that. But I really felt the Lord said, I must proceed to the next, right? You know why? It's important that we keep pace with what is being delivered so that we don't hold up the rate at which God is going to release new things. I'm appealing to us all, rehearse that series, particularly if you've missed core facets of, facets of it. Um, rehearse it, play it in your car, play it at home. You have two things at your disposal. You have the MP3s and you have the notes. Okay, so use the notes together with the audio to really consolidate what we have taught. I'm glad we ended the series with an emphasis on meditation. You know why? Because this next topic we're about to begin this morning is going to require that you've mastered the art of meditation. What we're going to release to you is going to demand meditative focus for you to extract its full benefit. Okay? 
We can start recording from now. So the, our topic of discussion, do you have that picture on the screen, Liam? Our topic of discussion for the rest of this year, for the whole year, is going to be firstborn sonship. Okay? Everyone say firstborn. Firstborn sonship. Now, it's a vast topic. What I've done is I will email you the notes on Monday. I uh, just needed Renee to, to edit this. Renee is my editor. She checks for all the errors, <laughs> spelling and grammar, etc. And she had a keen eye for these things. So I didn't want to release this to you. I was almost tempted to email it this morning. But I thought, I can't see, but she will probably pick up a host of errors here. You always need a second eye to look at your work, okay? And so you will get that by tomorrow evening. But I want to start the series nevertheless. So please, please just follow with me in your Bibles. As a point of reference, turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Keep your Bibles open to that scripture, and we're going to come to it in a moment. I want to make some introductory remarks regarding firstborn sonship. Today's session will be largely an overview. I'm going to sketch the broad outline of what I believe God is going to offload and download to us this entire year. So we'll just basically stretch the framework. We'll fill in the details in subsequent sessions as we go along. Amen? For me, this is probably the most um, enlightening the most encouraging and the most emancipating. I'm trying to look for all the E's. Everyone say encouraging. encouraging. Say enlightening. Encouraging. Say emancipating. Encouraging. In other words, the most liberating thought or series or topic that this local house is going to explore. It's going to enlighten you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to set you free. It's going to emancipate you from a lot of things. It also is going to presuppose that we have within our spirit the entirety of the previous series we've just released, the primacy or the priority that we give to God's Word. God's Word is our GPS. It's our standard and our point of, of reference. Everything we're going to say, we will anchor it and root it firmly in the, in the Word of the Lord. If you want to summarize this, firstborn essentially is about the restoration of an accurate identity to sons of God in the kingdom. Colossians says this, He has rescued us out from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. The kingdom is called the kingdom of His Son. Or the son of his love. For me that's powerful in that. In that verse the kingdom is described as the kingdom of his son. The kingdom has a sphere or an area of influence. And within that sphere or area of influence that domain. So you have a king over a domain. You have a kingdom. The area or sphere of influence is described in that verse as a kingdom of his son. In other words, sonship must pervade the kingdom. Sonship must be characteristic of the kingdom. 
John 1 says, For as many as received him, John 1, 11 and 12, 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him, not. But, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave what? Power or authority to be called. Everyone say called. To be called the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. The Greek word for son in John 1.12 is the word technon. And it is not euios. There are two Greek words. In fact, there are uh, four or five. But there are two, la- uh, two largely known Greek words that demonstrate or are translated son. One in that context is technon. And the other, which is a more developed, mature son, who has gone a, a little j- journey in his spiritual development, is called euios in the Greek. Okay, so we have, we have technon. And we have... Oh, sorry, this is, should be an S here. Euios, and euios is spelled various ways. That's one particular spelling. This one indicates entrance into the kingdom of a person that has the legal status as the son. So your, your status legally has been changed from a child of the devil, like Jesus called the Pharisees in John 4, John 8, 44. You are a child of the devil. So you change your status from being part of a child of the devil. You are now a son of God. In other words, you are a tech. You are a technon. What qualifies you to be a son? John 1.12 says, As many as re, reception of Christ as your Lord and Savior qualifies you for sonship and you enter the kingdom. Right? But did you know that is the initial reception? The reception of Christ as, is both initial and ongoing. Christ is always coming to you and you've got to keep on receiving Him to take your son, not like, please don't get me wrong. It's not like you get saved every week and you receive him into your heart every time and come up for prayer and enter the kingdom. I'm not talking about that. You get the ones where you first came into the kingdom and you received Christ. But from that point onwards, Christ is always coming to you. And it's the continual receiving of him that grows your sonship from technon status to uios status. And I'm getting a bit sidetracked, but I'll I'll give you an example. Galatians 4, um, Paul said this to the Galatian. When I came to you, you received me, how? As an angel, comma, even as what? Even as Christ himself. Question, did the Galatian church receive Paul as Christ? Yes, according to that verse, yes. Who was Paul to them? A spiritual father. What does the spiritual father, your oversight or leadership, some people call him pastor, I prefer the term spiritual father. What does your spiritual father bring to you? The word of the Lord. What is in the word whenever the word comes to you? Grace. Right? So Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. What do you need to configure your identity is grace that is in the word that comes to you through the medium of a person, a man 
or woman, call your spiritual father, who keeps preaching the word to you, when that word comes to you, it is as though Christ is continually coming. And the more you receive that word, obey it. The continual reception of Christ in the word in which he comes to you will upgrade and develop your sonship from infancy to maturity. The problem then is this. Many people come into the kingdom by the initial acceptance of Christ. But few Christians go on to maturity and come to the place where they are the mature sons of God. And one of the critical reasons for this is they do not position themselves under the speaking of an authentic, apostolic, spiritual father who is sent to them to speak true to them and their reception and obedience to that truth will then accelerate, foster, facilitate their development in their sonship from infancy to maturity. Amen? So, do, are you receiving Christ this morning? Answer me. Are you receiving Christ this morning? I know you've received Him, you're saved. But let me just say this. Every time you hear the word, Christ comes to you, and you can either reject Him or receive Him. My point is this. In John 1, 12, what does it say? As many as received Him, to them gave He power to be called sons. What is the process, or what is the, the, the thing that gives you the authority and the power to label yourself son. It's simply this, the reception of Christ. So every time you receive him, power and authority to grow in the dynamic that is the result of your reception of Christ, power in that thing grows. Authority in that dimension grows. It grows the dynamic. It grows the sonship. It grows that principle. It, mature, it matures that principle in you. Amen? So tell your neighbor, I am a son. Is anybody not saved here in this building? You're not serving God, and you would like to. Quickly, anybody. You're hearing all of this, and it's Greek to you. But you want to understand. So I assume everybody here is saved. We're all sons of God. Amen? If you're not a son, and you're hearing this word, and you feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost, and you want to come into the kingdom, I declare unto you, your sins are forgiven you. God sees your heart. Come into the kingdom and find your place in God's house. Amen? It's as simple and as easy as that. Amen? So tell your neighbor, I am a son of God. Now, tell them more accurately, I'm not just a son, I am God's firstborn son. Like I was saying, firstborn has got to do with an accurate identity in God. Now, the issue of identity is very, very, very important. Belief informs behavior, right? Your perspective influences your practice. So let's just unpack that. My belief, what I think, informs my behavior. So I will never alter my behavior until I alter my thinking. I will never adjust my, my behavioral pattern if I do not adjust my mindset. My belief system 
configures my behavior. My perspective influences my practice. I will never alter the status and quality of my life until I alter the state of my mind. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. So you will never amount to more than your dominant mindset. Whatever is frontal and forefront in your thinking, particularly about how you think about yourself and how you see yourself, will largely impact how you're going to function in your workplace, in relationships in marriage, in relationships with your friends, how you will function serving a boss that's over you, or how you will function being the boss, stewarding people under you, this is going to affect every sphere and strata of life. It's very, very important. Listen carefully. Psychologists call it the self-concept, the ego, the view that you have of yourself. Many people have a negative self-concept. They have a poor self-image. They think less of themselves than what God originally prescribed. Paul says that you must, a man must not think more of himself than he ought to. Now, this is found in Romans. But whenever we quote that scripture, we always quote it in the negative. For someone is overthinking about themselves. And they think of themselves too highly. So then we quote the verse, Hey, bro, hey, sister, the Bible says, you must not think of yourself more than you ought to. Now, I want to use that same scripture, but in the positive. The point is, you must think of yourself. Just don't think of yourself more than you. Don't go beyond the parameters that God has prescribed. From my experience in my own life, people think beneath the God-determined level for them. They always think less than what God has got in store for them. The challenge is to let your thoughts be aligned with God's thoughts. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Good plans to prosper you. God said in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than your thoughts. So yes, my thoughts on this level, yes, God's thoughts. God's saying, I want my thoughts to be your thoughts, especially my thoughts concerning who you are. Your identity in God is crucial and God wants it restored. You are not just God's son. God calls you in his scripture. You are my firstborn son. You corporately are my firstborn. There is no second, third or last son. There is no middle son syndrome in the kingdom of God. You are the apple of God's eye. You are God's first choice. You, you are God's preoccupation. God's thoughts are filled with you. David said, this is Psalm 119, How vast is the sum of your thoughts toward me, O God. If I were to count them, they are more in number than the sand of the sea. Think about this. God's mind is preoccupied with you. God fills his mind with you. Psalm 8, David said, What is man that you are mindful of him? Okay? 
and you've set him a little lower than Elohim, than God himself. The angels, there is Elohim. We'll unpack that verse later. You've set him. It's not that his mind is just filled with you. His mind is full of preeminent thoughts about you. His mind is filled with a position and a status, an identity that you should occupy in his mind that he wants to be your mind. He wants it to be your dominant worldview. You know why this is so, so important? That we now start to begin to configure our mindset. I don't mind if you wake up every single morning, even if you're going to have to do this for five minutes, stand in front of the mirror and say, good morning. Let me use Lillian. Good morning, Lillian. Talk to yourself. This is, psychologists call this self-talk to enhance the self-concept. So you remind yourself, Lillian, you are not just a son of God. You are God's firstborn son. If you have to repeat it for a minute, do so. You are God's firstborn. I remind you, in all your decisions, in all your actions, you share and tell yourself you are God's firstborn. You occupy a position of preeminence in God's mind, and His plans and purposes for you are significant. You are not less than. You are the head, not the tail, but keep reminding yourself you are God's firstborn son. I'm not last on the God's agenda. I'm foremost on His mind. He has not relegated me to the fringes somewhere at the back of his thinking. Right? I occupy a frontal position in God's purposes and plans for the end time church. I am special. I'm highly favored of the Lord. I'm the apple of God's eye. God's mind is filled with me. I am God's firstborn son. Tell your neighbor, this is the new FB. Not Facebook, firstborn. Right? Tell, you, uh, tell a few people around you, you and, and please do this with prophetic assertion and conviction. Tell them, you are the firstborn son of God. So the issue, I'm going to write it on the board, the issue, like I said, this is going to be a key word the entire year, who we are. Our identity. Our identity in Christ. I'm God's firstborn son. The thing about identity is that from identity flows destiny. Identity relates to who I am. Destiny relates to what I do. If I can get my identity right, my purpose and the execution of divine purpose in my life will flow forth effortlessly and in great power, yielding tremendous results. Whenever you attempt to do without knowing who you are, you always reap poor results. Because you now start to function in an orphan mentality. The opposite to sonship is orphanity. If you're not a son, you're an orphan. A son knows I have a father. An orphan struggles with performance-driven activity to reap reward, favor, and acknowledgement from people. 
But a son still works, but his works functions out of rest, purely from an assurance as to who I am in God. Okay? From being, I do. I don't do apart from knowing who I, knowing who I am. In fact, there are some in the kingdom historically that have attempted to do, and they've wreaked havoc with huge, I call it, relational collateral damage in the kingdom. You've done much, but you've left in your wake a string of broken and hurt relationships. Why? Because you've attempted to execute kingdom purpose without your nature and character being thoroughly formed. When a person knows who they are, they will perform exploits in God. Daniel, there's a verse in Daniel that comes to my mind now that says, the people that know their God shall be strong and they shall do exploits. It's knowledge of, of who God is that unveils to you who you are. Everyone say Father. The Father nature of God is going to come to a great focus in the series because you cannot talk about me being a firstborn son without referencing it to that dynamic or that part upon which you are dependent. Everyone say dependent. A son, you know, a son doesn't come from a vacuum. If you say son, what are you presupposing? Hey, there's a father somewhere. Sons don't just come on the scene. So I always, I want to remind you, and I will do it recurrently throughout the series. Firstborn sonship has a dependent culture. Its dependence is upon a higher authority than itself. It, there's a father from whom it receives its identity. You know, the greatest problem in the world today is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness encourages orphanity. Fatherlessness is the problem underneath every other problem. That's why Malachi says, I will restore the hearts of fathers to sons, sons to fathers, that I might not come to the earth and strike it with a, with a curse. If you restore fatherlessness, there's a whole uh, um, string of related issues that simply rectify themselves when the problem underneath the problem is restored. Amen? And so are, you're going to find a new level of intimacy with Father God. Because, let me just say this, a son's identity always issues forth from his father. Son, I'm talking about in the spirit now. So when David kills Goliath, what does Saul ask the men? They don't ask, go find out what is his name. He wants to know, go find out from the lad who his father is. Saul knew the principle that if I'm going to discover David's identity, I have to discover the source from which it flows. David, the beloved, his name means beloved, is the son of Jesse, and Jesse's name means I possess. So who's David? When you ask David, David, describe yourself. Who are you? He will say, I am David, the son of the one who possesses. Jesse, I possess. I, so if I am able to possess things, conquer, subdue things like Goliath, that possession, dynamic, and grace in me flows directly from the one who, who offers fathering to me. Amen? 
Tell your neighbor firstborn. And now we're going to unpack this as we go along. In fact, if you know your dest- if you know your identity in God, it's going to be very effortless to venture into your destiny, knowing who you are in in Christ Jesus. Amen. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, "Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" And after all the the range of options presented, Peter finally says, "You are the Christ." The son of the living God. And then a few verses down, I think Mark says this. From that time forth, Jesus began to tell them how that he must suffer and be killed of the Pharisees and scribes. What caused Jesus to talk plainly? And Mark says, and he spake plainly about this. What caused him to talk about his destiny? When they understood who he was, when they understood he is the Christ, the son of the living God... It released Jesus to talk about issues of destiny. You know, there are many young people here, and I heard the young people at a powerful time on, on Friday, yeah, discussing some of these issues. I think our young people are going to be at such an advantage. Many of you are going to discover your destiny very early. Some of us had to work through a lot, trying this and that to find our place in God. But you're going to come to it very swiftly. You know why? We are configuring in you an understanding of who you are. You know, God will only give mandate to the person who is thoroughly confident in who he is. God cannot send an emotional wreck into the battlefield. God has got to heal the man, make him certain and confident about all he is in God. You know, so when he goes to ministry, when he goes to execute purpose... No matter what is thrown against him, it will never derail him because of his confidence as to who he is. And that confidence as to who he is, is derived from his father. So remember Jesus stood at the Jordan, Matthew 3. A voice from heaven after his baptism came and said what? This is my, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I am. Well, please. That's the end of Matthew 3. Matthew 4 starts. Now the Spirit led him. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And three temptations all start in a very similar fashion. How did the devil start to tempt him? If you are what? Come on, talk to me. If you are the... What was Satan trying to erode in his thinking? You see, the Father just said, you are the Son. Satan comes, he says, hey, if I can hit him here, I've hit him here. If I can just rob him of identity, I can destroy his destiny. If I can mess up who he thinks he is about himself, the Father just declared it, I'm going to attack the very thing, the Father said. If I can mess the Son of God up here, I can neutralize, incapacitate him in any desire within him to explore and fulfill his Father's will. Satan knew this, and the strategy has never changed. Satan's still wanting to attack sons of God in the area of what they, who they think they are about themselves. Amen? Just remind the people sitting next to you. Say with, again, prophetic apostolic assertion. There's no jokes. Now tell them assertively. You are God's firstborn son. Now tell them this. Don't think less of yourself than what God made you to, to be. Let 
Remember what God said to uh, Adam and Eve. It first says he made them in his image and likeness. Then the command, the command was be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Listen carefully. Dominion and fruitfulness was only given to the image. God first establishes the fact you are made in my image. So if you have, if you have the, in other words, let me, let me paraphrase. If you have the right image, you can rule anything. You can have dominion and be fruitful. So long as you go into the world having the right mentality, having the right mental framework, right? You can never ever explore dominion and fruitfulness apart from being confident about whose image you carry in, in you. And you know, what word do we derive from image? What long word? Imagination. Image. You know, the attack is always in the thoughts. It's always up here. If you can get your imagination right about your image, in whose uh, divine image in which you were created, half your battles are won. Half your battles are won. The greatest venue of spiritual warfare is the mind of men. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of what? Now where do strongholds exist? In the mind. So we pull down strongholds and we, what does it say? We um, render, we subject every thought, he says, thought and what? Thought and imagination. We, we pull it down and we make it subject to what? The knowledge of Christ. My challenge, that's why, let me just say this, the meditation series we just completed is vital for this one. I hope your mind is medicated with meditation by now. I hope you are meditating on the word day and night. I presuppose these things. Please don't forget everything I've taught you. I hope you're praying in tongues every day. Right? I hope you're reading your word every day. Hope you're studying the word every day. Peace for the seed. Remember that teaching. I hope there's peace in all of your relationships. I hope your walls are still up of peace and there's prosperity in your palaces. I hope your righteous walls, your righteousness is still intact. All these things, I, starting this series, I'm presupposing all of us are obedient in everything I've taught up to this point. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. If you not, say A now. And I want to challenge you. That's why, listen carefully. I, was so, I felt tempted to rehearse things. But I need to go on. Because we can't be around a particular level all the time. So I'm presupposing obedience in all that we have done up to this point. Let me just lay out for you some of the issues that we will talk about. Listen carefully. Some of the issues that we will lay out in this series. We are going to talk about Israel. Everyone say Israel. Israel was a powerful representation of God's firstborn. And we'll talk about that soon. In fact, we're going to examine, we're going to examine the nation of Israel's exodus from Egypt. The escape from Egypt was really about a search for identity. Right? In fact, let me just talk about this now quickly. Um, I know you're in Romans, but leave that for a while. Go to Psalm 136, verse 10. 
the first part, Psalm 136, verse 10. Psalm 136 and verse 10. It says this, To him who did what to the Egyptians? Who smote the Egyptians or struck the Egyptians? How did he strike the Egyptians? How did God? It says he struck the Egyptians in their firstborn. Right? Now, look at me carefully. Remember that was the last sort of judgment upon um, Egypt, there was the 10th plague, in a sense. And after that, Pharaoh made the decision to let Israel go. So God was really in a militant mood. My point is this. Read that carefully. Just the first part. To him, what did he do? He smote the Egyptians. It says, this version says, in their firstborn. The point is this. Listen carefully. To render our whole superpower, which Egypt was in their day. To render a whole superpower totally impotent. Don't attack the whole empire, just kill their firstborn. You kill the firstborn, you neutralize a whole super political, economic, and military power in their day. Right? Now, the, Because the word smote, if you want to write it down, is kill. Or I kill your firstborn. Right? It's a very, very powerful word in the Hebrew. And it literally means to obliterate something before potential is attained or purpose realized. To obliterate something before potential is attained or purpose realized. So how does God bring Egypt, listen to me, to its knees, buckling and begging Israel now, go. And don't just go. Whatever you need, ask us. And what they did, they asked for all the gold, all the wealth, and they left in one night. What causes a superpower like that to basically accede to God's command? Let my people go. The principle is that the firstborn occupies, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the detail in a later session. The firstborn occupies a position of tremendous power, strength, and preeminence. Power, strength, and preeminence. And you're going to see this play itself out when we do the case studies. Everyone say power. Say force. That's the word I'm looking for, force. Say strength. Say preeminence. So when God neutralizes and kills every firstborn in Egypt, and please remember this, every firstborn in Egypt, including firstborn of humans and of animals, died on that night. The firstborn of Israel was protected how? Blood on the lintels. And we can discuss that maybe next week. Important process. And remember before Israel came out, what did they observe? They observed and celebrated the Passover. That's going to be one of the first things we need to discuss. You, you know why? Because when Israel comes out from Egypt, they come out as God's firstborn. The land of Egypt was more than a land. It was a mentality. It was a thinking system that taught people you are less than, you are slaves. You're never ever going to amount to nothing. Your father, was, your father, yeah, was a slave. Your grandfather, yeah, was a slave. Your great-great-grandfather was also in this land as a slave. Your great-great-great-great-grandfather was, yeah, 
also as a slave. 430 years of bondage. Imagine a child right at the end of that process, the legacy things back. My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great, my great. All my family has ever known are these conditions. And you know how hard it is for God now to change the thinking of that person. So look at the next scripture and you'll see why. Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Are you ready for a mind change? Amen? I'm, I'm telling you, Brandon, get ready for a mind change. Think differently. All of us, all, I'm so glad so many young people here. Even, you know, this has been so challenging for me. You know what a, what a, what a catharsis is that be, it, it's been for me? What a change. In some areas, it was a hard change for me now to start thinking like a firstborn son. And listen carefully. You are not a victim of your circumstances. You cannot use that as an excuse or a crutch to lean on anymore. I declare the season of Egyptian bondage over in this church. The, the mentality of, 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 of enslavement, of struggle, of working by the sweat of your brow to build an empire that's illegal in God's economy. That is over. And you'll see the next two verses what I'm trying to get at. Listen carefully. Exodus 4.22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. My? Come on, say it louder. My? My firstborn. Notice how God describes Israel. Now God is talking to who? To Pharaoh. Go say to Pharaoh, hey. Now let me, do it. Let me, let me paraphrase it in my own Wentis language. Right? God is saying to Pharaoh, yeah, bro, you better be careful here. The people that you are dealing with are not just any group of people. They, in fact, they, everyone say they. Yes. Notice, not my sons, they're my son. A nation, plural, is attributed with a singular description. Israel corporately is my son, comma, not just any son. He's my firstborn in my family. The whole nation. Firstborn in my family. Then it says, So I said to you, let my son go, that he might worship me. Some versions say serve me. I'll unpack that later. Let them go that they might worship or serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Can you sense the militant mood that God is in here? God says, you touch my firstborn, I kill yours. I'm not going to play with you, Pharaoh. You don't want to release my people. Now, hear this in the spirit. God is saying to the Pharaohic systems of this world, God is saying to Egyptian houses, there are some churches that are Egyptian houses. I'll explain that later. Egypt, many places in the Old Testament, is called the house of Egypt, depictive of a church system, a religious system that encourages a thinking in a particular way. God is saying to all the Pharaohic systems, religious and otherwise of this world, let my son, my firstborn son go. Why? I have a mission regarding service and worship for him. In other words, eh? 
What is God saying here? God saying, release his identity. Because he has a destiny. Release him, not just, you know, God could have just said, let is, please Pharaoh, please let Israel go. I'm, be, I'm talking to you nicely, Pharaoh. Please let the whole nation go now. God comes now in an aggressive mood. God says, listen, playing time over. You listen to me over these plagues. Now, last one. If you don't let my son, my firstborn son go, and why must he go? Why must he go? That he might worship me or serve me. Right? And we'll unpack that later. So, the release from Egypt was purely nothing more, nothing less than an attempt from God Almighty to bring an identity to his people. We often think about Egypt in very dramatic terms. Eh? All the plagues, all the drama, the night, the red sea they're going to face. All of that was for one purpose only. God was saying, I just want to establish an accurate mentality and thinking in the lives of my people. Now read the, the next scripture and you'll understand why. Numbers 3, 13. Numbers 3 and 13. Numbers 3, 13. Hallelujah. I'm feeling so encouraged now. <laughs> Numbers 3, 13. God says this. For all the firstborn are mine. I'll talk about that later. On the day I struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn of Israel. From man to beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. Think about this juxtaposition of two parallel processes happening at the same time. There's two things afoot here happening in time simultaneously. Let me read it and you'll get the point. Read it slowly. God says, for all the firstborn are mine. Here's the juxtaposition of two processes in the next part of the verse. On the day I struck the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I sanctified all the firstborn of Israel. God is saying, when I kill the firstborn of Israel, I release my firstborn. Two things happening side by side. The escape from Egypt was nothing more than an attempt on God's part to bring an accurate identity to Israel as a nation of their firstborn status in God. Now, Acts 7.35 calls Israel the church in the wilderness. Right? Everyone say the church in the wilderness. Question, is Israel representative or depictive of a church? According to that verse. Yes. But they are a church where? Israel was the church in the, in the wilderness. And wilderness suggests journeying and traversing through difficult terrain in order to come to an inheritance. In their case, the promised land. Right? Now, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Go there. Our last verse for this morning. Hebrews chapter 12 says the following. Hebrews 12. Verse 22. 
It says, but you have come. I like this, how it starts. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Zion is depictive of a mature, perfected church. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. I'm going to spend two sessions talking about how angelic activity accompany firstborn sons. Be powerful. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, You come to Mount Zion, you have come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriad of angels, to the general assembly, and to what? And to the church of the... This is New Testament. You are called, you are described in these terms. You are the church of the firstborn with an enrollment in the heavens. Tell your neighbor, we are the church of the firstborn. Like Israel was the son, corporate but singular description, Israel, corporate entity, son, singular description, we are the church of the firstborn. In other words, listen carefully, when God looks from the heaven upon his church, he only sees one son. Well, we are many, but really he sees a corporate entity called the church of the firstborn. Okay, one last scripture. And I'm going to give you some examples and we'll close. One last scripture, which is the first one we should have read. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29 will be our bedrock scripture for the series. From here, many things are going to sort of mushroom from, okay? And we know this so well, eh? We know that all things... Work together for the good to those that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what is His purpose? The next verse tells you. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to what? I said loud, image of His Son. Remember I told you about image and imagination? The word image is character in the Greek. Character with a K. Right? Allusion to character. An impression or an imprint of the divine upon your life. Right? So, remind your neighbor, you are the image of God. You are the image of God. Right? You are the image of God. So, it says, we were conformed to the, we were conformed to the image of His Son, so that, here's the key phrase, so that He would be the firstborn. Among many brethren. As we've taught in the past, the word among here is the Greek word en. And it should not read among. It's a translator's mistake. The word should read in. So if we reread this, it should read like this. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn in Many brethren. Right? We're a large group here. If I'm among you, I can't be in all of you at the same time. Not so? If I'm in the middle here, I'm in uh, equidistant proximity to most of you. Right? But if I'm here, I'm more closer 
to Georgia uh, than I am to Sharon at the back there. And among this, if I'm among a group, it doesn't necessitate or facilitate equality, my being equally present everywhere with everybody. But if I am in everyone, I can be in equal strength and presence and my, my, my person distributed throughout the entire group. This Bible is saying, He, Christ, he, God conformed us. Everyone say predestined. We were predestined to be conformed, squeezed into the image of His Son. Listen carefully. The image of the Son or, or His Son. So that why? He wants to be what? In all of us. He wants to be firstborn in every son. What is the apostolic burden? The apostolic burden is that Christ might be formed in you. What I am suggesting to us all, the, 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 the dynamic of his nature and being, that he's coming now to the fore, that he wants to see mature in every single son. He wants to be the firstborn in you. It's not so much that you are firstborn. It says that he should be firstborn in everybody. That's why we sang, and I'll talk about inheritance a whole session. It's amazing what, what Sean said. He qualified us. He, he made us meet to be partakers of the divine nature, Peter would say. He says, we are heirs of the what? What do heirs get? If you're an heir, what are you, what are you up for? An inheritance. Everything the Father has becomes? Now it says, we are heirs of the Father but the Son is really the heir of the Father. But we are joint heirs with the Son. It's an amazing, an amazing privilege that God has given to every single one of us. God has taken you that was nothing. You that was going nowhere very, very fast. Right? You that had no destiny. You whose life was... I can almost prophesy you're going to be a big mess by the way, the right thing. God says, hey, Pharaoh, let my son go. Bring forth an identity that he might serve me. I'm accessing and activating his identity that he might fulfill his destiny. But this is such, such a privileged position. Please, brethren, throughout the series, let there be a soberness within you. Let there be gratitude within you. The fact that God, listen carefully, you got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the Godhead. The Son is an heir to all the estate of His Father in their economy. What the Father did in His grace, mercy, and wisdom, right? He took, who can I use? Anybody? Mary Ann. He took Mary Ann. And says, Mary Ann, you see, Father, Son, Spirit, I put you with, together with the Son. What, whatever access He has to the fathering resource and riches, I make you not just an heir of the Father, but you have joint heirship with the Son. You know, joint heirship is an amazing principle. I lock you in to all that the Son has access to, and all the privileges and status He has, you have. That should break any kind of inferiority in your mind that you have about yourself. 
Jordan, next time you, you go into the world at school with your friends, you walk not with arrogance, but with the sense of, I, I know who I am. I'm not just a son. I am God's firstborn son. He has actually put me, not on equal footing, but right together there with his son in terms of the privilege, the, the benefits, the power, the, the capacity to administrate the kingdom. He has put me right there with his son. That for me humbles me. How good is God, eh? When you think about this, God, that's why salvation is not about getting you saved from hell to go to heaven. When you understand what God did in salvation, He put you into the kingdom of His dear Son, translated you out from darkness, put you as His firstborn Son, and we'll talk more about this next week, through whom He's going to express all of His nature and purpose in the earth. You are very special. You know, Israel was so special in their identity as God's son. God was willing to destroy a whole superpower just to get them to, to right thinking. Everyone do this. Tell your never kidneys. <laughs> That's a, for those of you that are not yet, a, it's a corporate church joke. <laughs> kidneys. <laughs> okay. um, but get your thinking right. Don't wake up tomorrow saying, ooh, ah, what, why me? Get up with a new sense of vigor and assignment in God. You are God's firstborn son. In the Bible, listen carefully, there are many examples. There's Israel, there's the Levites, which we'll talk about later. God took a whole, tr you know, Israel forfeited their right as a nation to function in firstborn. God says, okay, no problem. I take the Levites, one tribe, and let them replace Israel as my firstborn. So the Levites became a representation of the, of the firstborn principle. Okay, let me test your knowledge here, especially the kids in the Sunday school. Abraham had two boys. Who were they? Two sons. Isaac and? Who was firstborn? Who came out of the womb first? Ishmael. Right? So we'll call him Ish. <laughs> Not Ish, Ish. And Isaac had two boys. Who were they? Isaac had Jacob and who was first? Who came out of the womb first? Esau. Esau and how many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Who was Jacob's firstborn? Reuben. Reuben disqualified himself as the firstborn. We'll discuss that later. Reuben disqualified as himself as the firstborn. Then the firstborn went to the second son, which was really the first son of his second wife, which was? Which was? Joseph. Remember this guy? He had two wives. He was blessed. But he had two mother-in-laws too. Oh, Lord. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. My mother-in-law is not here, okay? That was a joke. <laughs> And remember, Leah gave birth to Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Judah, right? And then um, Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Benjamin, right? And there were others that, and they conquered each, by the way, each wife also had a concubine that fathered some of the other, that mothered some of the other kids. 
Joseph himself, Joseph himself had two boys. Who were they? Manasseh and? Who was firstborn? Who came out of the womb first? Manasseh. You see a pattern here. Manasseh and? And? And Ephraim. It's amazing in scripture, all of these guys were disqualified. Everybody who had the natural right and privilege of functioning in a firstborn status forfeited that right because of disobedience or not apprising and understanding their privileged position that they had in God. Every one of these other guys rose up to steward the purposes of God in their day. And I pray, I really pray, we're going to discuss the issue of what factors lead to a forfeiture of firstborn privilege and status. Okay? Now, and I pray that we never ever come to this position. Our ultimate example is who? Our firstborn. Our ultimate example of the pattern of the firstborn son is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it is in His standard of firstborn that we all come into. And right through, as we discuss all the case studies, I said this morning is going to be just an overview. As we discuss all of these case studies, we will consistently draw reference to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of how he modeled in human form what it is to walk on the earth as God's firstborn. You see, don't try to become this. Let him be this in you. It says he wants to be in everyone as firstborn. It's not in your own strength. It's not about being. It's about trying to be it's about him just evolving and maturing in this dynamic within your life and your experience as the firstborn amen amen stand with me let's lift up our hands and pray Come on, remind your neighbor, firstborn son. Come on, firstborn son. Hallelujah. Rita, you are firstborn son. Amen. Don't think less of yourself at any level. Firstborn. And you will be amazed at the privileged position God has given us as we unpack this further. Let's just uh, lift up our hands in absolute gratitude. You know, I can't, I can't get this thought out of my mind. Eh? God took Randolph Barnwell and he put him as a co-heir with his very own son. That's an amazing, that's an, that you can camp, that's a sila moment, that's a meditation principle you need to think about. Think about it and meditate on that verse tonight. Let it sink in, let the reality of it come to the fore. Let me just say this, just stop for one second, look at me. I, want, I need to say this now. You need to start meditating on this every day. I would say go overboard. Write a song about it, write a poem about it. Do whatever you have to to get it into your heart. Draw a picture about it. Liam, construct a, a, a design about it. Whatever you need to do, have it here all the... In, in, have it in your sight and in your frontal of your mind all the time. You know why? I'll teach you later. How that part of his privilege is that 
everything in the entire earth will redirect itself to serve God's purpose in him. But it only comes to the mind. If God says, if I can get you get your mind right about this, everything in your world will start to change. I'm convinced. Um, one of the ministers here in Durban is talking about now the mind, the consciousness of the mind to which everything spiritual only responds to. God, let me just say this. Even God himself is hamstrung if you're not thinking right. Listen, listen repeat after me. As a man thinks, so easy. But listen carefully. It's not just you. God is literally handcuffed. He will, he will want to do something for you, but he can't work outside of how you are thinking. Your thinking is your biggest limitation to, to, to the hand of God moving. Right? If you're going to think like a slave, then stay in Egypt. But if you're going to venture forth, God is saying you need to break down the, 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 the boundaries and borders, the circums, uh, uh, things around which you've circumscribed around your thinking that limit my dealings with you. I can't work outside of your thought process. So this is a serious challenge to all of us. I say it for emphasis. God is saying to the house, I cannot work with you or do for you outside of how you think. That is why the Bible says he's able to do far more exceedingly above all we do what all we ask or imagine or think. God needs someone to imagine the right things. God needs someone to start thinking the right things. So once your thoughts are right, God in the heavens will respond to it and even go way beyond the subject of your meditation. God says, I'll go beyond your thinking. I will do far and above, beyond what you are thinking. Guess what? No more words of lack are going to come out from this mouth. Guess what? No more words of doubt will emit from this mouth. No more words of what if will God break through? What's going to happen? That is the discussion of an orphan. It's not the conviction of a firstborn son of God. Amen? So I say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my son, my firstborn son go, that they might worship me. Amen? Let's lift up our hands. I bless your people, Father, with your word, with grace impartation. I thank you for this truth, and I pray it will grow and abound richly in everybody's experience. I pray, O oh God, that our thinking will align itself to your view of us. I pray in Jesus' name this word will settle, Father. We, we take this word and we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Thy words were found, and thy servant did eat them. Thy words were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I declare that I am your son. I am your firstborn son. I am the apple of your eye. Your mind is consistently filled with Randolph, with Juline, with Moira, with Audrey, with Uran, with Luke, with Lillian, with Rita. With Gail, with Leona, with Mary Ann, with Gordon, with Evie, with Brandon, with Corrine, with Marion, with all of your names, the mind of God, He's only got you. So, Father, we thank you.
for putting me in a privileged place where you've made me your heir. You've made me your, I'm an heir of the Father. And you've made me to be the joint heir with the Son. I thank you that my thinking will never be the same again. I commit to meditate upon these principles until my nature is changed thoroughly in this dynamic. Father, I thank you and I bless you that life will never be the same again because you've made me to be your son, your firstborn son in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.